I'm uh, Manny Jules from the First Nations Tax Commission. My name's Chris Steinbrook, and I'm president of the Indian Land Tenure Foundation out of Little Canada, Minnesota. I'm Greg Richard, Chief Economist with Fiscal Realities Economists. Are we here today to talk about land tenure and its importance to First Nations in Canada? I guess you don't use the term First Nations down in the U.S. What is the preferred term? Well, we use Native Americans. Uh, we use, generally, we use tribes. We use Native Nations. Uh, much of it depends on the preference of who you're talking to. So we've had we've had more and more tribes go from um, using tribe to uh, the nations and citizens of the nations. Well, we are here today to talk about the importance of land tenure, and um, we have. I'm quite familiar with a lot of uh, a lot of Manny's work in this field. He's quite understanding that the whole fundamental foundation of a market economy is property rights and uh, done tremendous work in not simply expanding, uh, working with First Nations to restore their territories, et cetera, but to, to increase the, um, the uh, usefulness of First Nation property rights in, in, a, in, in an economy and then to support people in the development of their personal well-being, bring investment to their lands, et cetera. And I guess we're here to compare notes with uh, Chris Stainbrook about what's going on in the U.S. Well, I can I can tell you, um, the Indian Land Tenure Foundation. We are what 18 years old at this point. Um, we were started in 2002, and we started as a community of people who were organized around the mission of recovery of Indian land, and especially inside the reservation boundaries in the U.S. As you may know. We went through a process in the late 1800s called the General Allotment Act, which alienated uh, approximately 90 million acres of land from Indian ownership. And these were lands in the reservations that were guaranteed to the use and occupation by Indian people, exclusive use and occupation by Indian people. And um, so our goal is to recover those lands plus the lands outside the reservation that uh, still hold cultural and religious purposes for Indian people and have been the folks have been displaced from or can no longer use. We would like to get those back into ownership too. Uh, we the foundation functions like a community foundation. If you're familiar with that, uh, we recruit funds from other foundations, the public, corporations, uh, individuals, and then we redeploy those uh, proceeds into the Indian community, primarily focused on land. We manage, um, oh, what, 26 either designated or donor advised funds for. for organizations and others um, with a goal of uh, kind of a secondary mission of keeping money in Indian country as best we can. It's It's been a slog, but uh, I think we've put about $54 million into um, both programs and grants and loans to um, the tribes and 
and for Indian landowners over the past 18 years. We hope to, now that we've got a track record, we hope to jump that up considerably. We also, <laughs> having met Manny Jules, it would not be uh, out of out of order to follow in his footsteps and push push the envelope a bit on sovereignty in this country. And he's been trying to do that for some period of time, and and uh, have kind of recommitted ourselves to that after my conversations with Manny over time. So we. I, I certainly, personally, I appreciate having Manny out there doing his work because it it make it doesn't make me feel alone anymore. <laughs> well, it's important that uh, indigenous people from all of the Americas begin to work together, but in particular, you know, the tribes uh, from the United States and here in Canada. And in particular, uh, Chris, I wanted to hear your comments about the recent uh, court decision in McGirt and how do you think that will uh, impact uh, the tribes and, and in, 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 in particular your work? Well, and we've been, we've been trying to sort that out ourselves even. Um, on the one hand, it's the first positive court case we've had with the Supreme Court for nearly Wow, 25 years almost. Um, we had real small, a couple of real small victories in a few things. Usually the best we did was break even. And this was one where um, Justice Gorsuch, which, who's new to the, relatively new to the Supreme Court, um, but very familiar with Indian country from his prior judgeship and, and academia um, took the lead and um, essentially said you should follow the Constitution, which says treaties are the supreme law of the land and that only Congress can uh, re reduce a reservation boundary or disestablish a reservation boundary, but it has to be explicit from Congress now. On the one hand, that's a significant change that in the Supreme Court holdings. On the other hand, um, it tends to reaffirm that the United States through Congress has the plenary power and can unilaterally, Congress can unilaterally reduce a reservation boundary, even though it constitution um, calls treaties the supreme law of the land, and um, the question then becomes: Can you can you violate that treaty unilaterally? And that's part of I think what's got Indian country a little on edge again is that having the the plenary power, and particularly with this administration, you never know where it's going to go, and. <laughs> So we're left a little bit in a quandary over how is this going to play out? The state of Oklahoma, of course, isn't real fond of the ruling. And um, are they going to look for ways around it and push it back to the Supreme Court again? Um, 
now that the Supreme Court makeup will be changing over the next month or two. I would like to tell you, Manny, that that this was a great victory, but I'm not sure we got um, great out of it. We got good, <laughs> but I don't know about great. Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, when I read the case, I, I was very optimistic about, you know, the 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 uh, properties that were taken through the Dawes Act and the fact that there's, you know, individual title that was allotted that, that could still be uh, under the jurisdiction of the tribes. And I, you know, you are correct in in looking at, uh, you know, the role of Congress, and that's a lot of a lot of the misinformation that we get up here in Canada, is uh, you know, the sovereignty aspect, uh, and we always aspire to try to follow in the footsteps of the tribes, but uh, a lot of the First Nations here don't recognize that even in the United States, there's still trust land, which is very similar to. Uh, our reserves up here in Canada, where the title is vested in Her Majesty, in the United States, it's still vested in, in the United States government. Even though that there's you know sovereignty, and we all we all say that we, this is our land. <laughs> yeah, I, I just had a conversation about an hour ago with a tribal council or a tribal college. Um, instructor, and we were talking about how there are any number of people who go out and say, well, we're sovereign nations, but then not act like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a struggle. You know, on the surface, when this case first came out, and I hadn't had a chance to read it yet, but I had heard the, the public press on it, um, I was thinking, well, this is going to put that part of Oklahoma, which is probably a good third, maybe a little more than that of Oklahoma, in the same kind of situation that that you have there at Kamloops, where you've got the underlying jurisdiction and ownership as a nation, um, but having non-natives on the land and and being able to administer the land even with non-natives on it, um, there's still that hope, and it and it would the case certainly suggests that it could be there. Our, I guess my own personal fear is that the state of Oklahoma and and the five tribes won't get this sorted out very well, and someone will try and make a move on it. Yeah, I'm I'm following it with a lot of interest, uh, trying to glean as much as we can and look at uh, whether or not there's any precedents that we can use uh, here in here in Canada. Uh, but you know, it goes right to the fundamental premise that uh, what we have to undertake really is a decolonization of how the the states, uh, the state governments, have viewed. Uh, uh, Aboriginal rights and title and and uh, sovereignty in the United States, and how we effectively can can really maintain the jurisdiction that we've always said we have over our lands. That's right. That's right. And and it it doesn't just a just does doesn't just apply to um, land per se, but all the resources and other pieces that go with that, and. Um, 
which is probably one of the uh, toughest parts of the trust relationship that we have with the U.S. tribes and also then that plays out on trust land that um, it for too long tribes in this country have um, even relied on the federal government at times to look out for them when the reality was the federal government was kind of negotiating away pieces that should never have been given up. And it's only when the tribes stepped up and said, you know, we're going to provide our people to look out for ourselves that we started seeing um, some of the agreements become more tribally focused and less um, negotiating, negotiating away our, our tribal rights. Well, you know, trust, maybe you could expand on what you mean by trust. Here in Canada, we call that a fiduciary uh, with trust responsibility. What what does that entail in the United States? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure I can give you a short answer to that. Um, you know, the trust relationship was at the heart of the Cabell case, which was of course, the largest um, class action suit against federal government by Indian people on their income coming off of land. And that um, was structured in a way that you would say this was a black letter trust in the sense of the fiduciary, um, much as you just suggested Canada has. The court came back on that, of course, when the hundred and 41 billion dollars was missing and couldn't be accounted for and said well this was really set up to be a 25-year arrangement and after that would go away and then it became permanent and so you can't expect um, this to be a black letter law trust which then leaves you with well what is it exactly right and yes that question hasn't been fully answered by anyone and i you know, I'm not sure I can give you much a much better answer because it it raises so many questions about what all is included in the trust relationship. And yeah. is that management of the tribe? Is that oversight of the tribe? Is that you know how do how do individuals fit in this? Because much of the trust land that's held is held in trust for individuals. Right. Does the does the Bureau of Indian Affairs come in and step in and if a individual landowner has a problem with the tribe and help sort that out? We have as one person said, we have uh, the holy um, the unholy triumvirate of trust. So we have the Department of Interior looking out for U.S. taxpayers. And then we also have the Department of Interior looking out for individual Indians and then also for the tribes. And so in that triumvirate of trust, where they fall at any given time is not absolutely clear. Yes. And the, the other thing that's always... Uh... A puzzlement to me is the relationship between the the uh, the federal government, uh, the national government, and the, all of the various states. 
and uh, you know what kind of and to what extent each have jurisdiction on because it's some from time to time it seems that states can come on and impose a state law on, on tribal lands and other times they can't can you explain that a little bit more well i i i can tell you there's today i think 575 federally recognized tribes and and they're all in of course they all have a different history with the federal government and with their state um, in some instances in fact going back to what's called public law 280 there are some agreements between states and tribes on who's doing law enforcement for instance um, there are fewer and fewer of those as the tribes have taken over the law enforcement pieces and and the judicial the the tribal jud, judiciary has developed uh, more the so it's difficult to say well here's the here's what actually applies but the other thing you have these differences between states and how they view the tribes and how they work with the tribes and so some states will fight the tribes tooth and nail on every issue and other states who recognize the value of the tribes to the state um, actually work with the tribes quite closely and um, in fact we're in the process right now of putting together one of our uh, message runner issues on tribal tribal and and uh, local government cooperation or lack thereof and give some examples of where it's worked and where it hasn't worked very well. But it's it, it's hard, as I said, it's hard to do a generalization and say, this is what it's all about. Yeah, well, you know, of course, where, where you had uh, the Trail of Tears, those states, uh, have, I think there's remnants of some of the tribes. They, would they be unrecognized, like in the Carolinas and Georgia? There were there were some number of those that were more or less unrecognized, but a lot have gotten their rec federal recognition back, which in and of itself <laughs> is kind of a sad commentary, in that you there were tribes who who you you need this federal recognition as a tribe. There were during the termination period in the late 50s, 121 tribes lost their federal recognition in the federal government declared them not tribes. And by implication, then um, the tribal members or the citizens of those nations weren't Indian anymore, weren't Native American anymore. <laughs> you know, we're talking about people who were 100% um, Native American, <laughs> and and then just declared not Native any longer. Um, Was that done by Congress? Yes. So that did not necessarily run afoul of like the Oklahoma case did. Well, that's you see that's when we were talking earlier about kind of the anxieties we have over the whole thing. It was the plenary power of Congress that allowed them to do that to people or to the the native nations and say they're no longer they no longer exist two of, two of those 
were large tribes membership-wise and also land-based. Uh, Menominee in Wisconsin and Klamath in Oregon. Um, large tribes and large land bases and were declared no longer tribes. Um, Klamath had 648,000 acres of reservation at the time and probably um, second only to Menominee in terms of success with their forest products industry. And so, and, and that's a legacy that we live with in this country, um, in Indian country, in, and those older folks remember the, the 50s and the termination period, and they're always concerned about that. I thought, didn't you mention before to me, uh, Chris, that you worked with Kalamath? We do. Yeah, it was one of, uh, I worked with them before I moved back to the Midwest. In fact, it was during their um, trying to get their recognition back. And um, they got, what, three acres initially <laughs> restored to them. Out of the 645,000? 645,000. <laughs> it became two national forests. They were part of two national forests, the reservation did. Unreal. You know, it's it's a sad legacy. Um, and But Klamath is, you know, fighting and clawing their way back. Um, and they're always looking for buying the, the former reservation lands as they can get them. As it comes up, yeah, they're, they're a famous tribe here. Their plateau culture, and you know, I'm very interested in all of the history. And you know, when I first traveled to uh, Texas, it was shocking to me that there were only two uh, reserves in the whole uh, reservations in the whole state. One in the western part, uh, it is a pueblo, and then one on the the eastern side. And then uh, recently, I was reading a book about uh, California. And it shouldn't be really a shock, but it was. Uh, some of the very first pieces of uh, California legislation was to put a bounty on, on Indian men, women, and children. It was, uh, you know, that's when you talk about the legacy, that's an incredible legacy that uh, the tribes have to live with. Well, and it's, you know, you'd like to think all of that's days gone by. For most people, they'd think it's, you know, a history that, they will just kind of turn a blind eye toward. But we work with some northern um, rancherias in California that actually had been disbanded. Um, and now they're starting to come back and we're helping them get some land holdings back again. But it, it took um, years for them to become recognized again, even though the communities were still there. Yeah, I love that term rancheria. It just you know, it's a, we we have lots and lots of names for our communities, and rancheria is definitely one of them. You know, and can you tell us a little bit about Gorsuch? You know, like you were saying that he's got he had a little bit of a history and as a judge uh, previously on Indian issues. Uh, tell us a little bit about him, because he... yeah, that that tenth district of the federal court, of course has lots of Indian country in it. And he was coming out of Wyoming. And um, so his experience with 
Indian law and familiarity with it was um, substantially higher than anyone on the Supreme Court at the time that he joined and since. Um, so he, he went into the court with this background. In fact, the first case that was tied to the McGirt decision, of course, was the Sharp versus Murphy. And that came out of the 10th. And so he had, he had to recuse himself from that case, which ended up tied then 4-4. Um, and so, I mean, he, he had this understanding of the issues. And uh, when McGirt came out or came along, he was then, um, it wasn't a surprise to see him write the, the case on this. Um, and it, I, I won't tell you that it was um, not surprising. <laughs> I mean, we were quite surprised that even with his background, that they didn't find a way around this. Um, we kind of expected they would. It was surprising that they found in favor of of the Creek nation. You know, it'll be it'll be interesting because they call him a textualist, right? So he goes strictly by what the law is that's written. And what was a little more surprising to me was that a couple of the justices that they call constitutionalists um, didn't concur with him. And yet, if you read the Constitution, it's very clear that uh, treaties are the supreme law of the land, and this was clearly a treaty that was still in place. Well, and yeah, and you always get that, uh, you know, academic uh, and philosophical debates that, that take place after and during major events like this. And, you know, when you look at uh, the constitutionality, uh, you would think that would have been a fundamental part of the case. But I always say that, you know, any court is going to be looking at ultimately uh, protecting the underlying interest of the state government as opposed to completely our interests. No, I think that's exactly right. And and we've seen that so many times that we've tribes and individuals have ended up in in the state courts for one one issue or another and the states always find against them um, and that's why this long dry spell that we've had at the supreme court of getting cases in our favor um, has been most distressing because it's as though it's it's a death by a thousand cuts as as if you would um, well, one of the interesting things about our courts uh, up here, uh, you know, there was one uh, individual who was at the uh, First Nations at the Appeal Court of Ontario, and uh, he decided not to apply to uh, for a seat on the Supreme Court of Canada because Canada uh, has got, it's part of its role of constitutionally can only have French or English speakers. Uh, at the Supreme Court, you've got to be bilingual. 
and one of the you know the, he had queried whether or not uh, somebody with uh, was speaking an indigenous language would qualify and he he didn't and so he chose not to uh, pursue it because he wouldn't have been appointed and with the, who is the highest ranking judge uh, uh, Indian judge in the United States mm, boy there's a good question I know there's well I think there's there are a couple of federal judges um, I'm not sure if anyone sits on appeals court though I don't I don't really know the answer to that Manny let's put it this way if there's one or two or maybe three <laughs> I'd be surprised if there's many more yeah and yeah the, we do quite a bit of work with the Naitahu on the Maoris on the the southern uh, South Island of New Zealand and there's a Maori individual from the North Island who sits on the Supreme Court in New Zealand and he's literally changed uh, the, the language uh, of, of Supreme Court uh, decisions simply not only simply because he's there but also the, the world view of the Maori now have to be taken into account in the judgments and one of them was just dealing with uh, death. How do you view death? And he was saying, look at, uh, we view, you know, death a little bit differently than, than you folks, the settlers. And, uh, the, you know, so the laws, you know, fundamentally change when we uh, participate at the highest levels of institutions uh, in the state governments. And that's why I go back to the point I made earlier you know, the Supreme Court isn't going to, you know, recognize here in Canada that you've got absolute sovereignty or that you've got title to the land because they're always looking at uh, the fact that here in Canada, Canada is going to have the, you know, the, 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 the federal crown will have the underlying title, whereas we view that a little bit differently. And, you know, until uh, there's true reconciliation, and in the recognition of our fundamental rights and how, you know, how we should be part of uh, the fundamental makeup of, of our respective uh, countries is, is fundamental to, to how we're, we're going to be able to survive as, as nations, uh, ultimately. And that's why I really, you know, look forward to the kind of work that we're, that we're starting to do, Chris, because uh, without Indigenous people, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, intellectual exchanges between Canada and the United States, and even trade, you know, how we can trade together, strengthening our economic ties, because traditionally that's what we did do. You know, people were, uh, there was no 49th parallel uh, that prevented us from having indigenous trade, and we've got to get back to those notions that we had uh, as one of our fundamental freedoms is is economic freedom. Uh, it's just like Chief Joseph said, "Let me trade where I where I want," you know. And uh, and with that comes obviously responsibilities. And I always think, uh, with uh, you know, for the state governments, a lot of the issues that prevent them from uh, adequately dealing with us, uh, you know, on a on a basis of justice is. This notion that I started to think about a number of years ago, which is liability, you know, the, the less liability they have, the better off they are. 
And the more liability we have, the, the, the better off we are because then we can take responsibility of looking after ourselves. And that means having adequate uh, jurisdiction and uh, a true, uh, in my view, a true fiscal relationship, uh, which is really at the heart of it, you know, because uh, uh, we've got to be able to have economic freedom because without economic freedom, uh, you can't have social justice. And that's what I hear here, you know, ever since right in your backyard, the, you know, with the, the, the really the, the killing of uh, George Floyd, the, this notion of social justice. And in my view, you know, uh, you can't have social justice on its own without a true uh, reckoning with the economic injustice that we've been, that all of us, you know, black, white and, and brown and others uh, on the poor folk have been subjected to you know if you if you don't have an ability to be able to take care of yourself build your own house uh, you know and have the wherewithal uh, because there are true legislative barriers preventing us from doing that well mammy i would agree 100 percent with that <laughs> and i think if there's been i think if there's been an upside to this COVID-19 virus and pandemic, it has shown uh, any number of tribes and tribal leaders um, where we're actually at in terms of um, sovereignty and in terms of being free from all the strings that get pulled on us. And so as we went into it, um, a few things came home. One was that issue of economic sovereignty and could we survive without the federal government doing something for us? And that became clear for a lot of tribes pretty quick that they were dependent on the federal government. The second piece that started to hit home, oh, back in the end of April, 1st of May, and especially once the big packing plant shut down in the, the Midwest, is food sovereignty became a real issue. Can we even feed ourselves if everyone's walking away from us? I think we're seeing these lights go on around Indian country right now that say, not only do we need to be able to live financially, we need to be able to provide health care for our, for our people. We need to provide food um, or at least a mechanism to allow them to get to access food. I mean, it's... It's kind of sad that it took a pandemic to get there, but I think people are starting to recognize um, if you're going to be a nation, you need to, to really be a nation and get active about being one. It's a real, you know, it's a philosophy and it's a worldview. And that's exactly what my thoughts were here in, in Canada, and particularly looking at the Navajo tribe, Navajo Nation. You know, 16 million acres. I forgot how many, uh, you know, grocery stores, 13 or something in 16 million acres. Of course, you couldn't, you know, get the, the food nor the water <clears throat> to to all of the community members. And that helped facilitate the, the you know, the rapid expansion of COVID uh, on that on that reserve. It was just so sad to watch. Yeah, it is, you know, and then you contrast that to uh, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, 
and they immediately set up roadblocks on their the highways going in and out of the reservation. Um, and if you didn't have an absolute essential reason for going onto the reservation, they they would reject you driving through on the highway. Um, of course, the state of North Dakota and their Republican governor decided that she'd step in and <laughs> it didn't matter to the tribal chairman up there. They weren't going to let the state dictate to them what was going to happen on the reservation. And so they basically closed the borders. Yeah. And that's that's literally what saved a lot of communities here in Canada as well. You know, the, 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 the communities up here recognized if they didn't shut their borders, there would be no, not enough health care. Uh, up at Haida Gwaii, uh, formerly the Queen Charlotte Islands, there was one hospital uh, with five ventilators for 5,000 people. You know, you just, you, you had to close the whole, you had to close the borders. I think maybe the health care situation on the reservations because on most reservations in the U.S. is provided by the Indian Health Service, which comes out of the public health service. And it's one thing when somebody would have, you know, a broken bone or something, have to go sit all day in the waiting room to be seen with a broken arm. That's one thing when they're when you're up against a pandemic and your health care situation is at that level, that became life and death for a lot of people. And, and it's why the tribes shut down so quickly in this, for most of the tribes closing off borders. Yeah, well, it is the best, the best that they could do with what they had. And I, I started during the early part of the pandemic here in Canada, I started looking at a lot of the historical documents. And in particular, a number of statements that were made by our chiefs in 1910 calling on the, the federal government to have a fair and just settlement of the land question here in British Columbia. And that struck me when I started to read, uh, in particular, this one document uh, from 1910 saying, we, we, we need our own doctors, uh, we need our own health care, uh, we need our own elder care, uh, we need our own, basically, you know, saying all of these statements and I thought geez that's like deja vu all over again because here we are in the middle of the, the at the start of this pandemic needing the same things and why did they say that and the reason for that uh, statement in 1910 was because they remembered the smallpox epidemics from 1862 and 63 which decimated three quarters of our population and so you know during this period of time for just about 40 years of their life, they were struggling to make sure that they had the jurisdiction to be able to look after ourselves. And that's still going on today. Like if we don't have the jurisdiction, uh, we're never going to be able to look after ourselves with the, with we're, we're, you know, in the midst now of, uh, the beginnings of the second wave, uh, here in Canada. And, you know, you're having, you know, tidal waves in the United States as far as we're concerned. But, uh, you know, what's going to happen once post-COVID happens? You know, how well are we going to be prepared, you know, to be able to look after ourselves? And the answer 
in my views, they have the jurisdiction so that we can have the liability to look after ourselves because we're the best ones to do it. But that means, you know, the federal government's going to have to orderly vacate, you know, tax room to us and as well as the provincial governments. And, you know, the complexity in the United States where you not only have to deal with, you know, the, the Department of the Interior, but Congress and then Senate. And a lot of times if you're not, you know, if you're not on the agenda, uh, you're going to be lost. I, you know, it's just, and that's why, again, I think that the the strength uh, of our, you know, of our infancy of working together is is the potential that we've got to, to begin to make the, the fundamental changes that are really necessary. Well, and I think, Manny, one of the things that I think um, I look forward to in the in the back and forth with you and the, the cross collaboration is to pick those pieces out where we can educate um, tribal leaders and tribal membership around these issues. I mean, we spend, I would say, from the foundation start till now, we've probably spent 85% of our resources on education. And and that's not just educating non-Indians about Indian issues. It's educating Indian people about Indian issues and and trying to move that conversation toward a, a more full sovereignty as opposed to um, the reliance that we see on on the federal government still and 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 like I said earlier, this COVID piece um, has really brought some of those issues right to the forefront. Absolutely, I you know we're just now uh, we weren't really affected uh, you know uh, during the first uh, wave of the pandemic. We were able to you know make sure that it didn't infect a lot of our communities, although a lot of communities were infected. The the second wave here in the interior. Uh, a lot of our neighboring communities are it's now starting to creep into our communities and that's a, a scary thought you know when you when you look at you know the 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 people that have been impacted more than anybody else uh, are those on the lower end of the socioeconomic specter and that means uh, you know first nations and indian people in the united states and uh, brown people and and uh, you know black people and how uh, uh, how and why does that happen? Well, it's because of economics. You know, we, we have to go out and be on the front lines to work. Uh, we don't have the same kinds of uh, securities as, say, uh, you know, a Bill Gates or somebody else like that or a Warren Buffett, you know, where you can isolate yourself. Well, and, <laughs> and you're saying this from Canada, right? Where you have health care for folks. <laughs> I mean, put yourself put yourself in our position right now. So here we've got, you know, we've got the Indian Health Service to rely on to some extent, but that's not sufficient. But if you if you are an Indian person with some amount of of income and wealth, and you want to go out and buy insurance. Um, it's expensive for one, and um, and the the current administration is going to court next week to do away with the what 
was the Affordable Health Care Act and the pre-existing conditions clause that didn't allow insurance companies to say, well, if you've got a pre-existing condition, we don't have to insure you. Now, that's in the face of 6 million people being diagnosed with COVID right now, which, of course, is a pre-existing condition. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> not, a, not even including diabetes or any of the others. Oh, right. Right. No, this is a, a six, almost six million add-on. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, well, you know, and and one of the things I I started to to realize uh, that you know having a national healthcare system here in Canada definitely is has made it a lot better in comparison to the United States and other countries that didn't have a national healthcare system, uh, you know, but it still wasn't ad- and isn't adequate enough to to be able to look after all of us. Uh, because a lot of our communities are re- remote and don't have, uh, you know, access to the same health care as somebody living in in downtown, whatever, you know, Vancouver with dentists and doctors and, and the like, and even testing. And, uh, you know, so we can sympathize a bit, but I know uh, looking at a lot of the tribes and the experience of the Navajo that because with a, without a national health care system, uh, Indian people in the United States are even worse off than we are here in Canada. I I just have to tell you, as I walked out the uh, door this morning, I told my wife I was going to be on the the phone with you, and and she said, "Well, tell me we're moving up there." <laughs> and she, <laughs> she, I mean, she she said we're moving to Kamloops and uh, <laughs> and this, and especially if Trump gets reelected we're gone and then she <laughs> won't have this will they well you know we would welcome you Chris you and your family of course <laughs> you know i i one of one of the funny things though is because uh, you know, of the the Jay Treaty, everybody, you know, maintains we've got uh, some rights in the United States. But there have been court cases here in Canada where they're saying that tribal members in the United States doesn't mean that you're going to be recognized here in Canada, which is atrocious. You know, if you're, if you're Indigenous, you're Indigenous, you know, and, and even... Uh, with the, the Trump administration, you know, seemingly going going after a lot of the what he calls the, you know, the 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 porous border on the U.S. Mexican border and wanting to build a wall. A lot of those folks are indigenous people, you know, escaping, uh, you know, hardship in their own countries. Yeah, yeah, that that to me is the most egregious things that he's doing. Although. It's interesting now he's kind of dropped off of that. And this is this is this guy's got a attention span of about a day at best. Um, and you know that of course the there are those who raise it every once in a while with him. I have to tell you one of the things that I saw that was somewhat humorous is the the Canadians put a cable across one of the border one of the border crossings from the US to slow people down and make them go through the checkpoint turn them around <laughs> and, 
And down here it was portrayed as the Canadian Southern Wall. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. How is it you you get away with about a $40 cable (laughs) and we're spending (laughs) billions? No, it's, you know, the history uh, that that you have uh, is is incredible. Uh, And, you know, the history, and it just, you know, makes me proud of all of our histories, our collective histories uh, here in in the, the Americas. And what we've been able to, you know, how many pandemics we've lived through in the past. And when people talk about resiliency, uh, we've demonstrated and had to over and over again. Uh, but this time, uh, you know, coming through uh, COVID, we're going to have to really seriously think about, uh, you know, just as you mentioned, Chris, the, the you know, the, the, the food sovereignty, the health sovereignty, uh, the jurisdictions that we require to be able to do that. Uh, you know, when you, when you have food sovereignty, that means you're going to have to deal with water. You know, and water, water rights for us are fundamental, and that's one of the things the Maoris uh, in in the South Island are are going after now is, is uh, how can they protect uh, water, because so much depends on that, and if you can't have access to water, you can't have a dairy industry, a cattle industry, you can't grow crops, you know, and and a lot of times uh, here in Canada, people talk about. You know uh, what happens uh, the, with the Colorado River, as an example, that it, sometimes it doesn't reach the Pacific Ocean. But I also also say that look at every time we eat something from California, that's that's uh, water, you know, that was taken. And some of it's, and some of it we've got to begin to codify, uh, so that we can financially benefit from from the water. But at the at the same time, we have to have the jurisdiction over it to be able to protect it as well. One of the first things my dad did when he was uh, chief here in Kamloops was fight, you know, to preserve uh, uh, some of our wild rivers, uh, the Thompson rivers that you fished on. You know, uh, they wanted to dam uh, those rivers, uh, and that would have killed, like like the the Columbia River Treaty, it would have virtually killed the the salmon industry for us. And this year, you know, even on top of COVID. Uh, about, oh, it must have been within the last month, uh, we were shut off from fishing sockeye. And the sockeye salmon for us is our virtually our culture because so much depends on that run. Uh, and even what we call tsuan, which is dried salmon, uh, I just got some over the weekend and I, I didn't think I'd be able to get any this year. And... Uh, you know, without without water, uh, and so when we, you know, with the the Columbia River, of course, the the Columbia River Treaty is up for renegotiations and forever. Uh, the federal, both federal governments uh, were saying we shouldn't be involved, and then we started to get involved again. And those discussions were shut down as a result of COVID, but. There's so many, you know, like water, because water has no sense of boundaries. It's just going to go where it goes. Uh, those are issues that we definitely have to be able to work together on. And it's just as fundamental as land. 
Well, and it's when you take something like the Columbia River, for instance, you get 23 basin tribes, um, all with all with a different view, or I should say they have only minor differences in the view of the river, but of course want want to make sure their treaty rights are enforced all the way up on the river and into through Canada and into Montana even. But it's it's an area where First Nations should be working with the tribes from the lower 48 on on becoming the the third big party in the discussion with the two federal governments and and, and need to come together. Yeah. It's like after the Bolt decision, you know, in the state of Washington, you know, where the tribes got access to a lot of the fisheries. What what really helped after the Bolt was the fact that we became part of the International Salmon Treaty, you know, in the in the fisheries. And we could participate in that. And with you know, how I look at the Columbia uh, is the Columbia, the Fraser, and the Thompson Rivers have their start right in the Shuswap territory, and uh, we have to be involved, you know. But uh, but what's happening now this this year uh, with the sockeye salmon? There's only two hundred thousand sockeye that's going to be coming back to spawn, and every year it's getting less and less. And people say it's just. Uh, you know, as a result of uh, climate change, but it's obviously more than just climate change. It's overfishing, and it's uh, you know the the wild stocks are definitely being uh, decimated somehow or some way, and and we have to have a fundamental role in in the management of of all of those resources. Well, and I think even if you take baloney and and the the baloney decision on the Columbia River, U.S.V. Oregon. Um, and look at that in terms of extending it out. It, you know, it said that um, it was one thing to be able to harvest at the usual accustomed sites, but if there's no resource to harvest, what's the treaty right really? And so that then brought the tribes into co-management the Columbia River um, back in what the 1980s, um, even early 80s. And so that co-management piece is important, particularly in the Columbia Basin where um, there's considerable federal land that's out there. And being co-manager on that to help ensure your treaty rights is important. Manny, you, you know I was a fisheries biologist on the Columbia River for a number of years. And and uh, yes. we watched the sockeye runs do the same thing to the point where a few years into it, they were sampling up at the one big lake just to see if there was any genetic material of sockeye in the, in the system, um, not even being able to find a fish. No, it's uh, yeah. I just I I yeah. I was telling you about some of my ledger art I've been doing uh, through the uh, this COVID period, and I did uh, one for you on the Kamloops rainbow trout, uh, just so that you'd have a memory of of our working relationship. But but I also did some on the with the sockeye, you know, thinking how important it was for us to you know to be able to fish. Uh, for the sockeye and 
did a drawing also of this tsuen, which is the dried salmon, and, uh, you know, just the sockeye runs, uh, just so that I would, you know, because I was so touched uh, that we weren't going to be able to fish for it, you know, this the remainder of this year. They just opened it up for a couple of weeks, and then bang, it was gone. But yet, uh, you know, it's so uh, important to us. And Chris, what I wanted to, you know, I guess we should be closing off here. Uh, what what I wanted to tell you is that, you know, during uh, this period of isolation and COVID, uh, that doesn't mean that we we can't continue to work together. And I, I surely uh, know that the, the work that you're undertaking is of national importance uh, to the, the tribes and to individuals in the in the United States and uh, the work that we're undertaking here, I, you know, and, and the work that we're also doing with the Maori, uh, we're all paddling in the same canoe trying to, to get to the same location. So it's it's easier with a lot of us paddling in the same direction than, as opposed to, you know, no communication or no working together. So I, I hope this is, uh, you know, not the, the, the end, but the beginning of our long-term working relationship. Oh, I, I think it is. Um, in fact, uh, you know, you're still on for being our keynote at the annual conference in March. Yes. We're counting on you um, to be the keynote speaker plus do a session. And I think it's going to be an opportune time. Where we'll have, it'll be virtual. We'll have somebody come up there and film you doing it. Um, and what we would look forward to is, and what I'm personally looking forward to, is having you describe for folks the situation you have at Kamloops and how how that underlying jurisdiction really plays out, and, and convince some of our tribal land staff folks that it's not as scary as it seems to them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's I'm truly honored. <laughs> well, it'll be good. It'll, uh, you know, it's one of those things where if if folks can see it working somewhere, they begin to think about it. And a few years ago, there was a gentleman from down in this. I think he was with uh, Hopi, maybe, uh, or from Hopi, and and he was saying to folks. Um, you move toward what you think about. And so if we can get people thinking about how do we really become sovereign nations, that's what we want them to move toward. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, no, that's good. Can I ask you a quick question while you're still here? Um, you know, you were saying you, you're buying back lands that were, you know, uh, really important, et cetera. What's the... Nature, are you trying to bring them back into the reservation or do you hold them fee simple through a trust is there, or is there no single model? Well, the, the land we get back primarily, and it's not all on reservation, but a lot of it's on reservation land. Um, those were lands that were alienated during the allotment process. So what happened, the federal government came in and made 160 or 320 acre allotments for tribal members or tribal head of households. And then much of the rest of the land was declared in excess of Indian needs and open to homesteading or sale. 
And so we lost the 90 million acres inside those reservation boundaries to Indian ownership. And we've helped a number of tribes pick up different pieces. Um, and then outside of the reservation boundaries, we've targeted places that are of significance in terms of culture to the tribes like Bear Butte for the Lakota and the, and the Cheyenne a place called Peshlan, the Black Hills, which was where the Lakota star knowledge originated. So those are the, the on those properties, because we, because we're either faced with having county and state jurisdiction over some of those properties, if we, if we don't put those into trust and have the federal jurisdiction and therefore the tribal jurisdiction over it, um, the county and state would still have considered jurisdiction over it. Okay. So it's held, it's now in trust when you do that. Not automatically, <laughs> which is, which is a real kind of beef for me. I think there should be a status called tribal land or native nation land. So that when we buy something or a tribal member buys something, it immediately goes into the the native nation jurisdiction without any further ado. And right now we go through a process of asking the Secretary of Interior to take land into trust for the tribe. And that's not only is it kind of the opposite of sovereignty. In fact, in the foundation here, one of our sayings when one of these comes up is there's nothing that says sovereignty like ask, asking the secretary for permission <laughs> it is simon says <laughs> you have to take a step backwards to get where you want to go well that's that's what i mean that's that's the way it appears right but the foundation would like to push this notion of Native Native Nation land, and 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 we've been working with a few groups on that, and we've been working with a couple of tribes around. Do you really need a trust relationship with the federal government anymore? We'll see. Um, the issue becomes: Can you convince the tribal membership of it? Which is why, which is why Manny Jules is doing the keynote at our conference this year. <laughs> So he can help get us there. <laughs> Would you need federal legislation to bring that about? Um, in theory, yes. Can I ask one last question? Don't want to keep you too long, but um, my, is my understanding correct? Now, so in the in the Oklahoma decision, it was the state could not override the treaty, but that the Congress could. Is that the way that stands now? Yeah, the the because the treaty. Um, put the reservation in place and Congress hadn't taken the, the time in their, in their action on what's called the authorizing act. So they, the reservation wasn't, this is the boundaries of the reservation weren't distance disestablished. And so that left the area, the jurisdiction over the, that area um, to the tribe. And so the state can't, um, in, impose uh, state law on that area, unless the tribe, of course, could agree to it, which I don't think they will. 
The federal government then has um, the prevailing jurisdiction over it. And what could happen there is there's plenary power. Congress appointed themselves plenary power back in the 1800s to oversee um, the tribes and be their protectors in theory. But they can do whatever they want with the jurisdiction and the boundaries, and they can even get rid of tribes as they did in the, the 1950s. Hence the General Allotment Act. Let's see. Okay. It's the termination period again is what people are worried about is that it will get so far to the right from this administration that they'll just decide they're going to go into termination all over again of the tribes. You've given me a little bit better understanding now. It's it's always a little obscure from a distance. <laughs> well, we didn't even get into the tough stuff on Indian land. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's going to be for the next episode, Chris. I, I want to be able to do this again. We've got to we've got to carry on with the dialogue, and so yeah. I want to I want to thank you thank you for your time and uh, this is uh, the first uh, the first podcast we're definitely going to be doing another one, so uh, keep that in mind. We'll get to the tougher stuff. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> they have <laughs> they have crafted all kinds of ways to get our land. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Andy, Chris. But- It's been great talking with you, Manny. And Greg, thank you. Thank you.